Welcome to the Retail Wire Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Retail Wire Podcast. I am your host, Brian Crum, and I am really excited for today's episode. We have another member of our Brain Trust with us today. Uh, this person is, uh, well, he comes from a long line in the retail industry. Um, I tell you what, I've, I've seen him featured on a lot of different uh, news stations, a lot of different resources around video, audio, everything. Um, this, this guy knows his way around the retail space. Uh, he is a visiting fellow at the University of Surrey and is currently the managing director of Global Data uh, Retail, which is a retail research agency and consulting firm focused on retail and consumer behavior. Uh, this guy's been with us here at uh, uh, Retail Wire. He's been a brain trust member since around 2017. So uh, I, I think that pretty much makes him the expert on on staff here, right? So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Neil Saunders. How are you, sir? Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, I'm great. Thank you, Brian. How are you? I am doing very well. Thanks for making time for us today, man. So Yeah, you're welcome. I, I love the brain trust, love contributing every morning, reading what everyone has to say. So it's great to do more in-person stuff, face-to-face. -face. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's kind of one thing we're looking forward to doing around here more is is having these conversations, right? Being able to kind of, I was telling you a little bit uh, offline here that, you know, this is why we do the podcast is we want people to know that not only are you guys experts in the retail field, right? But you have families, you you live in houses, you drive cars just like everybody, right? So um, that's a that's kind of a fun fun way that we can take the approach to this and uh, man, again, just thanks for jumping in. So tell us a little bit about who you are. Uh, where do you come from? What do you do? What's, uh, what makes Neil Saunders uh, a, a professional <laughs> that you are? <laughs> well, well as, as you say, it's good to see face to face because it proves we're not AI. Exactly. I'm just putting these comments on. We, yeah. are, we are all the people. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I am managing director of global data. So that is the kind of primary role, the primary job that I have. And in that role, what I do is really help our clients in the retail field, a lot of retailers, a lot of people who supply into retail, um, really just understand the sector, understand their place in it, look forward to see what might be happening in the sector so they can project things and ultimately build better business plans that they can grow market share or cut costs or become more effective at serving customers, whatever their objective is. So, I mean, that takes up a lot of my time. But outside of that, um, I do quite a lot of non-retail stuff. I do visit a lot of stores on the weekends, as anyone who follows me on Twitter will know. And that's kind of like a busman's holiday because <laughs> he's doing research Absolutely. whilst going to the mall. Um, but outside of that, I do a lot of cycling. Um, I love cycling. Every weekend I'm out on my bike, weather permitting. And I say weather permitting, it's not that the weather is bad because I live mostly in Arizona. It's that sometimes it's far too hot exactly. in Arizona to go cycling. So I have to confine it to like either the very early morning or the very late evening. Um, and I've lived in Arizona since about 2018. Yeah. Um, so I've acclimatized to the heat. And I prefer the heat to the rain, which we got a lot of when I used to live in the UK. Yes. So I'm actually fine with it. Um, but it's been very hot this year, which is why 
at the moment we've escaped and come to New Hampshire, which is why it looks green outside. I was going to um, say, I don't see sand or, or brown behind you. So that's a, you know, that's a good thing to get, escape and get away to some greenery. <laughs> yes. There's no cacti either, which yeah. is, uh, is a big difference. But yeah, it's, it's really nice to have that contrast because Arizona is a bit like it's a Martian landscape, at least where I live further up north. It's not, but around Scottsdale, it's very much that kind of tan, everything's sandy. It's a beautiful, stunning landscape. But yeah. when you come out of it and come to somewhere like New Hampshire, it, I think it's really nice because you see the contrast. And you're like, wow, isn't everything so green and lush? Yeah. So yeah, it's nice to switch between the two. And as I say, at the moment, it's super hot in Arizona. So it's, great to escape that heat yeah this this summer has definitely gotten a little crazy i know i've got a uh, family out near flagstaff and so they they have definitely been feeling it more this year and uh you know that heat is just it, it's crazy too because correct me if i'm wrong it's a drier heat out in the de like in arizona right so it's not quite okay. as humid and everything out there yeah oh for sure i mean if it was humid i i don't think i would want to live there um the humidity like Florida, it's it's a killer with that kind of heat. Um, we're lucky because it is very dry. So you can go for a walk outside and actually you don't really get sweaty. You'll get hot. Okay. But it sounds quite unpleasant, but the sweat literally just evaporates. Yeah. So you actually remain quite dry. Okay. I think if it was swampy, it, it would just be terrible with that heat. Because sometimes we can get up to like 120 yeah. something like that it's super super hot with zero zero humidity or very little humidity fine you put some liquid in there <laughs> yeah not oh i tell you i i understand that all too well because i was actually i got to go to mexico uh this summer for a little getaway and uh it was crazy because not only was it 95 degrees 98 degrees you know somewhere near 100 and uh, mm -hmm. then suddenly uh, I remember sitting there one evening looking out over uh, there was there was an island a couple miles off the coast there. Uh, we were on the north tip of Cancun. And so you could literally see this wall of humidity rolling through. We thought it was rain. No, it was just a gray cloud of humidity and it just rolled across and you could feel the, the humidity come up. Everybody in the entire restaurant started sweating because it was an outdoor restaurant. And uh, we all just start, you know, sweating through our clothes and. Okay. All right. Well, good news. We're in Mexico. So <laughs> at least you're in when you're on vacation. It doesn't matter, does it? When you're on vacation, I think nothing matters. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, okay. So now you've got, uh, so you live in Arizona. You're currently up in, uh, uh New Hampshire, you said. So, uh, mm -hmm. wife, kids, spouse, uh, pets, what, uh, tell us a little bit about just your, what's your family look like? Sure. So most of my family is actually in the UK, okay. which is where I'm from. So uh, that's kind of nice because it means I can go back there quite a lot and they can come over here. So actually there's a lot of travel and okay. it's nice for everyone to experience the new things. Um, I do have some family here in the US. I have a partner, so that's, so that's quite nice. An occasional pet. Um, I think, unfortunately, the lifestyle that we have is very um, sort of travel oriented and quite busy. So it's difficult to have a permanent pet, but uh, do have an occasional <laughs> pet. I, so I that's quite a nice dog. So 
I think that's the best of both worlds. No, no kids. I think for the same reason as as no permanent pet because <laughs> it's very it's so active. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily yeah. play to that to that life, and that's okay. That's all right. But there's plenty of time for that. So we'll we'll see further down the line. <laughs> never say never. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I I had to kick my two dogs out of the office here, otherwise they'd probably be nosing me the entire time. So. Very cool. Uh, So tell us, take us back to kind of the beginning of your retail journey. Um, What got you into retail? Tell us a little bit about, um, you know, were were your parents in it? Were you around it growing up? Or or was it just something that you kind of had a a fire lit up inside you one day? Well, interestingly, my parents weren't involved in it at all. Our family in its businesses and all of the professions it's had hasn't really ever had anything to do um, with retail at all. Um, but obviously as a child, I was dragged along shopping with my parents when they would go shopping. And I think back then when I was still very, very young, maybe like 10, 11, something like that, I was always fascinated by retail. I mean, I, I would go into a supermarket or I'd go into a department store, usually John Lewis, which is a big department store in, in the UK. And I would be absolutely fascinated by not just what I saw, but like the process. I would think about like, how did these goods get here? Who chose to put these products here? How did they decide to lay this this store out? And obviously being quite young, I didn't really have any answers to this, but I was just absolutely fascinated with like the mechanics of how retail or the shops worked. Yeah. And, you know, I always wanted to look behind the scenes. If there was kind of a, you know, a, a stock room door propped open, I'd always be poking my head around it. My mom would probably be dragging me out saying, you're not allowed to go in there, but I was very curious. And I think that really sparked off an, an interest in, in retail. Um, I didn't really think about it much because as kids, we don't really think about careers. Yeah. Um, I think when I was a kid, I actually wanted to be prime minister of the UK, which probably tells you a lot. I no longer would like that role at all. Yeah, which no, I, think I, don't, is, I don't think any of us would like to be involved in politics now. No. No. So I would never sort of intended to get into retail, but I suppose the next major milestone was when I was at, at university, I did a degree in, in geography primarily. It had uh, elements of economics and economic geography in it. And what I really liked about that degree was there were a lot of numbers and there were a lot of data, especially on the economic side, but I was absolutely fascinated with like, okay, the data is that they're the end result. They measure what's happening and there's a whole series of human decisions and actions that underpin those numerical data. And I was very interested in that side of things, like all the behaviors that ended up with those, those numbers. Um, and there were quite a few elements um, on the degree course that looked at things like consumption. And there was actually a very specific um, retail element or component. It looked at kind of the geography of of retail location and how people uh, would consume across different geographies, how retailers decided where to put stores, um, dealing a lot with GIS, geographical information systems. And I absolutely love that. And that's the area that I focused on for my dissertation. It's the area where I took most courses. And I, I absolutely loved it because it was that blend of looking at the data, but also having that qualitative side of really understanding the human behaviors, the psychologies yeah. um, of consumers. And so when I left university, I naturally looked for consumer and retail companies. And I actually went to work for John Lewis, the John Lewis partnership, which is a UK retailer that owns John Lewis department stores and Waitrose supermarkets. So that's kind of how I first got into retail. 
Man, that is, that's so fascinating. And I, you're right. I think a lot of people don't realize, they, they don't really think about, uh, it takes a special person, right, to, to understand uh, that a lot of these things, these, these items don't just show up in a store, right? And it's not just accidental that it's placed in a certain area. So consumer behavior does play such this vital role. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny how I think the average person probably walks into a store and just says, oh, it's here. You know, that's it. That's that's the end of the, the conversation for them. But, you know, the, to be able to be so curious about it and go, hey, what does it look like behind the scenes? You know, how do I, I remember the first time I ever got to see I was working on a, a photo shoot and there was a uh, we got to be behind the scenes uh, where they were producing some of the, the flower bouquets at a Walmart store. Right. And so you, mm-hmm. you think of there's there's a flower display. Sure. Someone actually put those together, right? A lot of people don't think, oh, there's a florist. There's someone behind the scenes that actually created them. And I think we've become so accustomed to that. I think in a lot of our, uh, specifically in America, I think probably we've come, become so accustomed to just seeing the item as just a thing, right? It's just, it's there. Um, and so we, we don't necessarily think too detailed into how it got there or who put that there. And so, you know, your, your fascination, I, I don't, I definitely identify with that very well because, uh, I always loved looking into the stock rooms. I loved kind of, kind of pulling back the curtain and kind of seeing what's, what's going on. How did this become the reality here? So, so you started out there and then you started out, um, and, and, and I'm sorry, you said John Lewis, is that right? Yeah, John Lewis Partnership, which owns the department stores and has a supermarket business as well. So it covers all of retail, really. It's the ideal retailer if you want to get your feet wet and <laughs> be in a lot of different areas. So what was your what were your first what were your first kind of experiences in retail like? Did you did you catch on very quickly? Were there any any fumbles that you want to to share as a, a laughable moment or anything? Or uh, what was that like for you? Well, I loved it overall. I mean, I was immersed in the environment, which was fascinating to me. And I was now able to go behind the curtain, as you put it, and see how everything worked. Yeah. And so it was it was absolutely wonderful to do that. And because it was straight out of university, it was a training scheme. So we were able to do absolutely everything uh, from serving on the shop floor to going out on the delivery vans with the drivers delivering orders yeah. um, to doing proper research work and development work, which was kind of like the, the primary role of it. Okay. So I absolutely love that because you you got to see everything. And it's really critical because, you know, you can make a decision in, in an office based on some data and what you think's right. But you'd speak to like drivers going out in the vans. They go, yeah, well, they changed this. And you know what? It just doesn't work because the schedule now is wrong. Yes. And you would pick up on all of these nuances. So I, I really like that. Um, it wasn't problem free, as I think no job is. I was um, for a time working in the electronics department and I was put in charge of um, a category and the category was electronic accessories. So it had things like uh, headphones in there, batteries, all the types of little electronics. You get cables and leads. And one of the things I had responsibility for was making sure that the levels of stock were correct. 
And most time it replenished automatically, but you could manually override it if you needed to, because you could say, well, it's not enough. We, you know, there's something coming up like a, a big event where we think people will buy more television cables or, or whatever. Yeah. And, um, I went onto the system on the computers and placed an order for batteries. And I was not really thinking. And I was thinking like it was rather numbers. I was thinking the numbers of units. I was thinking it was like, pounds and pence so i put two extra zeros on the end to ah. <laughs> count for the pence when it was units so that would rather than change things a bit <laughs> yeah rather than kind of i think it was 20 that was, i was supposed to order rather than 20 uh, of these these things turning up i had 2000 <laughs> well that's exciting so what what did the <laughs> what did the boss say to that one <laughs> Well, I kind of like was the first reaction was like, oh no, <laughs> like, how, can, how can I like cover this up? And these things went through quickly through my mind. I was like, maybe I could just buy them all, buy all the stock. And I was like, no, this is crazy. It's going to cost a fortune. So I just fessed up and said, look, I'm really sorry. I've done this. And yeah. he just laughed and said, look, you know, it's not the first time it's happened. He said, actually, it's a good lesson because it's fine. We can just send them back to the warehouse. And he showed me what you do in the computer just to do a, a, a return. Yeah. Um, and it, luckily it was, I mean, it, it's the, they're relatively small items, so it didn't like fill up the whole department, Exactly. but they're also things that are quite common a garden. I mean, they probably have, you know, millions of them in stock for the whole group so it didn't deprive anyone else of them so it was quite fortunate but i i think i went super red at the time and was just extremely embarrassed and i i never made that mistake again sure, <laughs> sure. you know we I, I think we've all had those moments especially as you're getting started in a certain area it, it's bound to happen the best part is having that leader that can just say hey look it's okay we're going to be all right uh we'll move forward through this and here's here's how you learn through this you know the uh, the the fail fast fail forward kind of approach, right? So you have to yes, have to right. learn from it and move on. Uh, that's right. Good. And they did improve the systems. They then put in. I don't think it was just because of me. I think it probably happened a lot. They put in place a fail safe eventually, where where you did these manual orders if it was X percent above kind of like the average daily sales value. Yeah, it would flag up and say, "Are you sure you want this many?" <laughs> so yeah. well, unfortunately, they just didn't have that when I made the mistake. Yeah, that's wise. I mean, even, you know, thinking of that uh, from an ordering standpoint, it's it's funny how that was not the standard until you and uh, several others had you know f made that mistake enough that they said, oh, yeah, this is something we really need to pay attention to. You know, I think of there's a there's an app that I use uh, occasionally whenever I'm uh, at the gym, right, whenever I'm working out. And it's funny because it'll say, you know, like do 20 of these or what, you know, 20 curls or something. And if you accidentally hit an extra zero, it will pop up and say, uh, are you sure that's 400% above what you said or what uh, it was recommended for you or something? And it's, oh, yeah, I hit an extra digit in there somewhere. So it's good to have those fail safes in there. Yeah, it is. And I think uh, the systems, to be fair, in, in my defense and everyone else's defense who made this mistake, they were extraordinarily antiquated. I think they're a lot better now. They certainly weren't as modern as they should have been. Um, they worked, but they often worked by the skin of their teeth. Um, and one of the things I worked on at the time was improving those systems and looking how how you could improve both the user interface of the systems, but also the reporting back. Because one of the things I like most about that job 
was seeing the reports at the end of the day, the end of the week, the end of the month, like how many units had sold. And you could you could look at everything. You could look at individual products. You could compare yourself to other branches. You could look at the group total of these things. And I absolutely loved all this data. But it used to come out in the most horrible way on like printed sheets. And it was all very, very sort of undigestible. And I think you yeah. could download it into spreadsheets and things. But one of the things that we worked on was like, how can you improve that visually? So you could automatically look at how you ranked in a chart compared to other branches. So it actually became a lot more useful. Um, so that, yeah, there was a lot of great stuff with the systems that happened and has happened since I left. Yeah. So, okay. So <laughs> I just, I, I, all I can sit, sit here and just think of like 2000 batteries or whatever coming in and you're like, oh no, no, we can't do this. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I think that's, it's really cool to hear your journey. So you came in, you came in through, uh, through John Lewis and then where did you kind of move from there? What, uh, what was your next step like? Well, the next step was to work for a company called Verdict Research, which eventually became a company called Data Monitor. Okay. Um, and that was really a research and analysis firm and doing consulting as well off the back of, of the research and analysis. And I worked in the retail part of that business. And so basically it was doing what I'd been doing at John Lewis, but it was doing it for lots of different clients okay. and on a much wider range of projects. And that's one of the reasons why I left John Lewis, because as much as I love the business and I love the whole business model of the John Lewis, because it's a partnership that's owned by the staff, I wanted the challenge of doing a much greater variety of work across different sectors, different retailers, and really getting to understand lots of different businesses. And Verdict and, and then Data Monitor provided me um, with that opportunity. And that was a, a wonderful lesson because it just expanded my whole knowledge of, of retail. It expanded my knowledge of different types of business, the different types of challenges business faced, um, different solutions that could be put in place, all sorts of different projects. And we had data coming in from all over the place. I mean, we had consumer research data, we had retailer panel data, we had receipt data, we had our own analysis, we had forecasters, we had economic data. And it was just like, it was like a kid in a candy shop, basically. My eyes just lit up at all these different data that you could use yeah. on the project. So I really, really enjoyed that job. Well, and when, when you have that mindset of understanding that, like you're saying, the, the data's there, but unless you can interpret it, it's just, it's cumbersome, right? And so to have someone like you who can go in and see the data and go, oh, well, this is the story it's telling. Then that makes it a lot more. Uh, it makes it a lot more accessible for not only the, the the leadership, but then also putting it back to the stores, putting it back to the the consumers. And you know, I would imagine that probably uh, just I, I would imagine that probably just made it a lot more enjoyable all around. Right? I mean, everybody gets to to see. Hey, I don't have to deal with the data, but you can tell me the story from it. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the biggest uh, lesson, really, in a way that I learned from um, being in that kind of environment. It's that look, the data are interesting, but they have to do something. And to do something, you have to really analyze them thoroughly, extract what's useful, and then tell the story out of them, get the insight out of them that allows you to go and do something on the ground that makes material difference to the business. Yeah. Um, and I think 
that still holds true today. I mean, you often see a lot of data that float around in the media, in reports and elsewhere. And there's a big so what factor to it. It's like, well, this is kind of interesting, yeah. but it's like, so what? What does it mean? And I think you always have to nail things through to an ultimate conclusion. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes the data don't show much and that's fine. You can say they don't show much, but very often you have to dig deep and, and try and tessellate things and put things together so that you come out with a story that's very informative and easy to grasp. Yeah. And that's that's really important because I think in retail, as in every industry, some folks are very numeric. I mean, I, I love looking at a big spreadsheet of data, but you put that in front of a lot of people and they're like, oh, I don't yeah. look at numbers. I don't like numbers. They're afraid of numbers in a way. Over, right? <laughs> yeah. So you have to tell them the story or visualize it. And one of the interesting things there is we, we, we still do do a lot of work for IKEA. They're one of our biggest clients. But um, back then, IKEA were also one of our clients in the early days. And we used to do a, a kind of a quarterly presentation to them. We used to go and present to the board of the UK, IKEA, and we used to present what we thought was going on the market, what we thought of them. We used to monitor all sorts of things like pricing. And we used to make it really visual and exciting. And uh, one day the then managing director of IKEA UK said, you know, he said, we, we love your data. We love your insights. We love all the consulting work you do for us. But you know what? We think actually you should come in and give us lessons on how to present data and how to tell stories because you do that really well. Okay. And that was like, wow, that's a really nice compliment. It's like yeah. no one has ever said that to us before. But I think that really drummed home to myself and my colleagues who are presenting like, yeah, like how you tell the story, how you show the data is sometimes just as important as the data itself. And I, I always think that's one of the greatest um, sort of come downs or, or the greatest shame of, of data sometimes is people sometimes have great data, but they just display it in an awful way. And it's like you it just falls on stony ground. And it's it's such a shame yeah. because that storytelling is we like stories. We're humans. And it's it's very important, I think, with data. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think that it's that is so true uh, because we we do love story. We do love understanding that. And so it's not usually that people have no interest in the story. It's that if the story is not consumable by them in a way that they that they can understand, well, then it's it like you said, it just kind of falls on stony ground. It just kind of goes over. It doesn't take root. You're not really going to you know, they're not going to grasp it. They're not going to say oh i want more of that because they they just don't understand it it's not necessarily a, a good or bad data situation right it's just in it's in that presentation so now that's a huge compliment and you know it's funny because uh one of the one of the topics i wanted to, to touch on too was i've seen like i said i've seen you featured on a lot of different news resources and you know, one of my questions that I had was, why do you think that is? But I mean, obviously, it's because of the storytelling, right? Like, it's because you're able to take something that could be to the, the broad masses, something that is so um, detailed, right? And so you have a lot of different areas and angles to it. Um, what's that been like for you, I guess, being able to to be that that figure that gets out and, and speaks to all these different news channels and everything about the, the data of what's going on in retail? Well, I think for me, I mean, I don't really look at the, the coverage. I think our press team monitors, monitors that. But for me, to be honest, I just like talking about retail. I mean, it's quite simple. So when a journalist calls up or gets in touch, I'm always really happy to chat to them because they're kind of digging as well. They want the story. What's this showing? Where's it going? 
what's the truth behind this? And, and, and I like that. It's very investigative. Yeah. And so I love talking to them. And I think that's very helpful. And being able to tell the story and be clear about the data is very important as well. But I think the other trick to it, if there are tricks to it, is to be honest and not be afraid to give opinions. And that's something that I, it comes over time because when I first started, I wouldn't really give opinions. I wasn't confident enough. I don't think I had the experience. I don't think I earned the right to give opinions on things. I was still learning. But over time, I, I have learned a lot, as we all do as we go through our careers. Yeah. And I now will give opinions, and I'm not afraid to give opinions on things, even if they're very blunt opinions. Yep. Um, they are opinions. People are free to agree or, or disagree, but I tell it like it is because I don't really see the point, to be honest, in life and especially not in research of not telling the truth. Yeah. Um, you have to be balanced. You have to be fair, but you should also tell it like it is. You have to speak the truth of what you see. And I think one of the reasons journalists like it is because to be quite honest, and I know why they do it, and I would do the same if I was in that, that position, a lot of very senior management in retail, they'll spin their story. They have to. They have to say what they think the market wants to hear. They have to put a positive gloss on things. But sometimes what they're saying is not the reality on the ground. And we all know it's not the reality on the ground. Yeah. So it's very important to have someone saying, well, hang on a minute. You're saying this is happening, but I'm not seeing it. It's not coming through in the data. It's not coming through on the shop floor. It's not coming through in terms of what your colleagues are saying on the shop floor. So you have to sort of hold the industry to account as it were. Mm -hmm. And I think we do a fairly good job of that, not just myself, but my colleagues as well. Um, and we have all sort of learned over time to be opinion, opinionated and opinion led based on fact, obviously. Absolutely. Um, and it's something we, you know, we drill into our you know, new recruits, we say to them, look, you know, when you have the confidence, don't be afraid to say what you think, especially internally to us. Always speak as as, as you think something is. Um, and we can have better dialogues that way. That's how we improve things. That's how we reach the truth of, of things. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, you know, I think, you know, one thing that you just kind of inspired in my thoughts there were, you know, be be willing to speak your opinion as long as it's rooted in in fact, as long as it's rooted in what you truly believe to to understand, then that's great. I think you know the only thing I might add to that would be and be open to to changing your mind if you're proven otherwise, right? I mean that's that's where I think a lot of us get stuck is going, hey, I can be opinionated, and then well, I'll just agree to disagree. But whenever you're opinionated, but also willing to learn and continue to grow. Uh, I think that's phenomenal. I think that's where, uh, like, you you know, exactly to your point, I think a lot of people are afraid to be opinionated. Or they're afraid to speak out the truth because it might offend somebody. It might it might bother somebody or it might contradict someone else's opinion. Uh, but if your opinion is firmly rooted and, and you actually have good data to back it up, well, then by all means, speak your opinion and have an educated conversation. I think that's really, really wise for for anyone, not just in the retail industry, but in life. Yeah, and I think that's what's great about the Brain Trust as well, because I think the Brain Trust does have a lot of people who will share opinions very openly. Yeah. And sometimes 
people will disagree, always very politely, I have to say. But it's really interesting to read through those comments because you see slightly different perspectives. And as you say, if you're open, sometimes it does shift your opinion slightly. And you'll say, yeah, actually, you know what? I hadn't looked at that angle before. That's really interesting. And it sort of makes your opinion more nuanced and balanced. Yeah. Um, and it's a great forum for that discussion. I think because everyone has such good experience, they're all very open to sharing and it's a very safe forum. I don't think people feel afraid yeah. to share their opinions, but also it makes it more valuable for the reader because you don't want to read 20 comments saying exactly the same thing. Yeah. You also don't want to read comments that just basically restate the facts. It's it's dull. It's like, well, I knew that already. What you want is something that makes you think and you sort of sit up and say, oh. And this is interesting because this actually is very much the ethos of the John Lewis partnership where I started. John Lewis is a... It's a mutually owned cooperative. It's owned by the people who work there. Yeah. Any profit after investments is divided up and paid out as a bonus to all of the staff. Everyone gets the same percentage of their salary um, as the bonus. But one of the things that's enshrined in the constitution of John Lewis is that it is your business, as in the people who work there, and it's your absolute right to speak out, to say what you think. And People are allowed to write into the House newspaper, the Gazette, and some of the the letters when I was there, um, they used to be anonymous. I'm not sure they are anymore, but they used to be anonymous and people used to give themselves funny names. They were quite peppery. Yeah. I mean, some people used to be really blunt, brutally blunt about criticism of senior management and senior management would have to answer in the replies to the, the letters in the mag magazine that came out weekly. Yeah. And it was refreshing. It was actually like, well, it can be painful. But it's the right thing to do because these are the people that work there. Yeah. They have a right to have their say. And actually some great ideas come from people on the shop floor, people who are out in the vans, people in the warehouses. And it was that culture of listening. And I think that that probably is one of the areas that I get where mm. I am today in terms of being not afraid to share opinions and trying to be open. Yeah. Would you say that's probably one of your kind of the one of the bigger things you've learned about yourself through this journey or, or kind of what? What has been your finding uh, about, you know, who you are and how you operate? I think, yes, I think uh, definitely building confidence to have opinions and use data to take it to the next level so you can be very descriptive and take it forward into having that point of view. I've definitely learned that. Storytelling is another thing that I've learned I think the other thing that I've learned is, which is not really to do with retail, I think it's just a life lesson, is that almost every problem you come across is is solvable. Yeah. Um, I am definitely someone who errs on the side of perfection. And I used to get not upset, but very anxious, I think, when things weren't right, either in the work I was doing or sometimes like in personal life or in, in home as well. Yeah. And I still do retain that perfectionist streak for example if i'm doing a presentation everything has to be aligned properly and you know the fonts have to be to be right it drives me mad when someone sends me something that's like can you not see this is like misaligned so i'm very structured like that but i think i've learned that you know every problem that you come across in in work or an issue like ordering those too many batteries it's really not the end of the world you can solve it and get around it you just have to be tenacious about it and logical about it um, so now I would say I'm a lot more relaxed as a person and a lot more relaxed in my career <laughs> than perhaps I was at the start. And that, that's been a good lesson for me. I probably can go a bit further <laughs> in that. 
I direction. That. But... Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> and you know, I think that that speaks a lot to to you know your growth and and kind of just your your own journey there because that is one thing where it, it's okay, it's completely okay to want things to be right and correct and true. Uh, but then also you have to remember there's that human element to anything, right? Just like, just like your manager did whenever there was the, the one ordering fumble that they, they still remembered you're a person, right? They still remembered, Oh, there's, there's a human here involved. And so, yeah, let's learn. Let's move from and move forward from it, you know? And so, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I just think that's, that's important for everybody, uh, as we, as we just continue to grow. And I think, Speaking directly about retail right now, there are so many areas of retail that are being changed around. Uh, some of them are going through big growth. Some of them are going through some shrinking, right? Uh, and so there's some shifts. Unfortunately, there's been some companies recently that they've they've uh, seen their last days. And then there's other companies that are just taking off and, and diff- different brands and different technologies that are kind of emerging now. Uh, thinking of retail and kind of the current state that it's in, uh, what are you excited for right now? What What do you see? Like, what? Whenever you read something about, you know, read about a specific topic or anything, uh, what is something that just really gets you excited? Well, I'm very excited to see how people continue to integrate technology. I think this is one of the great challenges and great opportunities because we're getting to a stage in technology now where there's so many questions around AI. There's so many questions around automation. And I think there's some really creative ways that we can apply this to, to retail yeah. um, to make the sector better for workers and make it ultimately better for consumers. And I think we're still in the very embryonic days. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, the early days of, not that I really remember them, but the early days of computers before they they came around, you know, when things started to computerize, you would have a lot of kind of different attempts to experiment and try different things. I think we're in that stage with AI now. I think a lot of people are testing it. They're looking at how it can be deployed in the business and no one has real answers to it. And of course, there'll be multiple strategies that work for different retailers. So I think it's really exciting to see how different people are deploying it, um, how different people are viewing it as a solution for retail. And I think, you know, in 10 years time, we'll probably be still trying out a lot of things um, but it would be fascinating to look back and see that journey and, and how we've evolved to the state that we're, we're in. Because I think retail, fundamentally, retail will be the same. But I think how it works in a lot of senses could be very different for for the consumer and for the people who work in retail, for, for better and worse. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, I agree with that completely. I think, you know, that's been one of the things that I've I've continued to see and and say as well is, is retail at the end of the day is all about person to person interaction, right? The vehicle, kind of like what you're talking about, the, the way that it happens might be different over time. But in the end, it's still a person to person interaction, uh, end to end, right? And so that's, that's really good to see. Um, you know, and, and thinking of technology and everything, uh, I, I want to get your hot take on this one. Uh, this will date the episode. That's okay. Whatever. But uh, my, here's my question. So I've been seeing a lot about Amazon One lately with their little like the wave your palm and it's got the palm recognition technology to it. What are your what's just your hot take on it? What's just your thoughts about it and, and technology of that type that when it comes to security and when it comes to the kind of that unique application of it? Well, I think the technology itself is absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's absolutely amazing 
when you think about it, that this technology could be put in place. I mean, if I saw this technology when I was a child, it would be a Harry Potter type thing. It'd be like, oh, wow, yeah. this is like, how does this work? How does this happen? I think we've become a bit more jaded to it now because we see so many technological things, but it still is amazing technology. I think it does have an application. I mean, look, it, it, it does save a bit of time if you can wave your palm. It is technically more secure than other methods. I'm not quite sure it saves so much time and is that much more secure than something like Apple Pay, but it's definitely better than paying by card. Yeah. So I think it does have an application. I think the, the two issues with it are, first of all, the obvious issue that some people don't like it. Uh, they think it gives up too much privacy. It's biometric data to a certain extent. And we have to address those concerns. They're very reasonable concerns. And... I think it is a barrier to adoption. Um, I mean, Amazon is not saying that everyone has to use this. It's optional still. So yeah. you can take it or leave it, which is the right way to approach it. But I don't think everyone likes it. The other thing is I like technology. I like technology that makes things simpler, that makes things more seamless and takes out friction. Yeah. But honestly, it's not a game changer. It's a bit like the Amazon Go stores. They are fantastic in terms of what they do. And, and Amazon is is led the way in building that type of technology. As far as the customer's concerned, does it make a difference? No, not really. It doesn't make you go to that store over another store. What makes you go to the store is all emotional. It's the quality of the food, the ambiance, the customer service you get because you like the brands there, because the prices are really good, because it's close to you. It's emotional decisions that often drive where you shop. And I think that's, if I had one criticism of Amazon, it's that sometimes they are very technical and they're absolutely brilliant at being technical. They're not always quite so good at that emotional side, ah, but that's okay. okay. I mean, yeah. that, that shows why they're not really a, a threat that some people make them out to be. They have weaknesses as, as well as advantages, as every retailer does. Yeah. So that's kind of where I stand on that type of technology. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I think it's going to be it's going to be really cool to see where I mean, we're recording this in 2023. Yeah, I'm excited to see where we're at in 2025. You know, 2 years down the road, we're going to have tons of different uh applications, I think, between this and AI and everything else we're doing, you know. So, uh th that'll be that'll be fun. But uh are, and are there any any brands I know you mentioned like Amazon just now, but are there any brands or anything that you're kind of really paying extra close attention to right now and just kind of watching them lead the way or or maybe have some hesitations about them or anything? Well, I think, I mean, I watch all the brands, really. I mean, it's a bit of a an issue because there's so many to watch, as you know. Yeah. Um, it seems the like every day there's like a thousand more, right? So Oh, yeah. It's incredible. I mean, it's difficult to keep up with it, especially when it gets into earnings season and everyone's putting out results at the same time. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're about to go. We tried to look through all the press releases on everything, oh. and we try to we try to sort through all that. And it seems yeah. like every day there's like 57 different uh, press releases about such and such company releases quarterly earnings, and we're going, okay, this is nice. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't need this for for my application right now, but we'll we'll keep that in mind. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's you. It's like drinking from a fire hose. There's too much stuff. It is. Um, but in terms of what keep what I'm keeping an eye on, I, I think Gap I'm keeping a close eye on because obviously there's just been a change in leadership. Um, and the new leadership incoming seems to have very good skills and talents. And I'm hoping that it is going to mark the start of a proper turnaround at Gap because the company has had so many false starts. And I think it's a great shame. Gap was a pioneer. And it's still a big company in a lot of ways. But the core Gap brand has lost a lot 
of its credibility. Um, it doesn't really know who its core customer is. And I'm, I, I like turnarounds. I always, and people say this sometimes on the retail wire, like, oh, you can't turn them around. I always hate that because it's like, I honestly believe anything can be turned around with enough effort and application. Whether it's worth turning around is another question. But I, mm. I think humans are very innovative and we can do most of the stuff we put our mind to. Wow. And I'd love to see Gap implement a turnaround and start doing better. Um, and I, I feel more optimistic with the leadership coming in than I've felt in a while. Whether they succeed or not, I mean, it remains to be seen, but it's going to be fascinating to watch. And I, I really wish them luck and hope they start to make those changes. So I'm keeping a close eye on, on that. Uh, Amazon, I'm keeping a very close eye on, on Amazon, um, because I think they're at a bit of a crossroads at the moment. They're mm -hmm. tremendously successful. Um, but they're trying to make better inroads to grocery and they're putting in a lot of work there. Um, they're also very mature in a lot of markets and we've got a new lot of upstarts like Xi'an and Timu. And I'm really interested to see the response to that. And I'm also keeping a close eye on the regulatory side as well. That's a side that really worries me um, for the Amazon business um, and, and what happens there. I, I don't think that uh, a lot of the criticisms that are levied at Amazon are particularly fair or reasonable. Um, but nevertheless, there is this, this legislative threat. And it's unfortunately a threat that is very difficult to deal with because when you have an issue like your customers don't like you or your customers aren't shopping with you, you can remedy it and change it and you can do it pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I think with legal things and regulatory things, it's, it's a lot more difficult to influence and have control over them. So I, I'm watching that very closely as well. Yeah. Now, I, I think it, it will definitely be interesting to see, uh, you know, kind of going back to my other statement of where we're at with Amazon in two years, you know, because I think that you, you're right. We are at a crossroads. We are at a point where there's going to be some uh, some big things that come down the pipeline that they may or may not even have control over, but it's going to impact them in such a way that it, it could shift their business model a little bit. So I'm, I'm excited to see where that goes. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, it's it's going to be very, very interesting to see. And I think that's one of the great things about retail, because, you know, if we go back 10, 15, 20 years, the story was all about Walmart and how Walmart was taking over the world. Yeah. Now the story has been about Amazon. And now the story is shifting again. And it's starting to be like, oh, what about Xi'an and Timu? And what are they doing? Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the great things. Retail is very, um, it's a very... A open playing field. And in some senses, it's a very level playing field. And you can get people coming into the industry and disrupting it in a way that you just don't get, I think, in some of the big industrial type sectors, because the barriers to entry in those, those sectors are so high. Retail has comparatively low barriers to entry. And that's why it's so fascinating, because you have this constant change, but also as well as the big players, you've got a whole bunch of small independent stores who collectively take billions of dollars uh, in terms of sales and they innovate and push things forward as well. So it's a sector that's in constant flux, constant change. And it, as you know, it keeps us all on our toes, which I think is a, is a really, really good thing. And it keeps all the retailers on their toes as well, because if you stop paying attention for a second, you can start to fail. And as you mentioned, we've seen that, yeah. you know, retailers do fail on quite a regular basis. Big retailers like Bed Bath & Beyond, 
they fail because they don't do the right things. And that means that, you know, the sector is one that you've got to really be alert in and you've got to constantly evolve, constantly change up what you do. And that, yeah, it's stressful, but it's also great fun as well. Well, and you, you do have to be getting to, to, to bring it back to your, your kind of core area of, of consumer behavior and understanding those metrics. Uh, you know, I think that's one of the areas where, you know, again, Bed Bath & Beyond, they're, they're out of here now. And so watching them, I, th- I feel like they kind of landed, they, they were, they were kind of like the jock in high school, right? That had the, they were the, maybe the, the football quarterback, you know, the captain of the team or something. And they had their one trick pony that, that was what they ran on, right? And I think, you know, it, it, just speaking from my understanding from the consumer side, uh, uh, you know, it looked like they were banking so heavily on everybody coming in for their 20% off coupons and and the big banners, you know, the sales and, oh, there's there's big flashy numbers over here. Um, but ultimately, it, every time I kept walking into a Bed Bath & Beyond store before, it was always, I, I would walk in with hopes of finding a wonderful item. And immediately upon walking through the doors, I would just feel completely overwhelmed because everything just looked muddied. Everything looked very kind of just, I don't know. I'm not going to bash the the floor mod person, you know, because they they had their job to do. But there was a time when everything stood out really well. And then I think over the last 10 years, eight years, something like that, um, it, it just felt like the floor mods were laid out in such a way that nothing really made sense at least. And so it was kind of harder to shop as a consumer to go through and find certain things that I was looking for. Um, and they had lots of trinkets, but then whenever it came to that higher end product that I was actually looking for, you would find it occasionally spread out, but it wasn't, it wasn't the feature anymore, you know? So, um, I, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens now in the next few years of retail. It's going to be a wild ride. I know that. So, uh, looking back, I know as we kind of wrap up here, uh, if you could go back in time, this is why I love to love to end every episode with this. But if you could go back in time to when you were just getting started on your own uh, retail journey, uh, understanding yourself better now than you ever have before, um, what would you go back and tell yourself? Is there something that you would uh, you know change, or is there something you would encourage yourself more in, or try to dissuade yourself from in any way? It's a really great question. And I didn't really prepare it, even though I know you asked this question okay. <laughs> for okay. podcasts. Um, I think, honestly, I would tell myself to enjoy the ride yeah. um, because I do enjoy the ride very much now. I think when I was younger, I was a lot more serious than I am now. I was a lot more sort of uptight and concerned about things I already mentioned, like seeing things as a, a problem and not necessarily understanding that everything can be, be solved ultimately. Yeah. And whilst I think you should take life and work very seriously, you also have to get the most out of it and you have to enjoy it and you have to not take things too seriously. Um, I think that's what I would, would tell myself. Um, I think I would probably have enjoyed my, I did enjoy my younger days. It's not that they were <laughs> horrible, bleak times, but I, I, I think I was just a lot more intense back then. And I think I didn't sort of almost like pause enough just to savor everything and to, you know, in, enjoy it. Um, enjoy the moment that you were in while you were in it. 
Yeah, I think I was always dashing onto the next thing. It was like, oh, I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to do this. And there's still an element of that in me. I'm still quite an impatient person. Um, And I think all traits have positives and negatives. And so in some ways, I want to change things because I kind of like aspects of traits and dislike other aspects. But I definitely now am a lot mellower and I do savor things a lot more. I really just enjoy the experience of of work or personal life or whatever I'm doing. Um, and that's so, something I would have told myself. But the problem is I could go back, but I absolutely wouldn't have taken any notice whatsoever. I'd have probably yeah. said, what do you know? <laughs> Even though you're from the future and you're me, you know nothing. I, <laughs> I'll continue. Okay. I that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, I think that's a good thing about life. I think it, you know, over time, it's like sediment. It builds up. You you get experiences, and hopefully, you become a more rounded and a a better person in in all aspects. And uh, yeah, I'll continue to strive for that. <laughs> Good. I think that's that's a great reminder for everybody here. Enjoy the time you're in. Uh, you know, just just be in the moment. You know, the 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 easier way of saying that would be live while you're alive, right? <laughs> just actually yeah, be able to enjoy exactly. it. So. Exactly. Be grateful for every, every day that you've got, because, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a very cliche, cliched adage, but, you know, you don't know when it will be the last. And, you know, it's, it's there for the taking and uh, it's there for the experiencing. I, I have a friend of mine who uh, he actually has a um, he's one of basically he's got an app that will occasionally go off random times throughout his day. Uh, and I think he has it set, you know, four or five times a day. And it just says, reminder, one day you're going to die. Or it'll say <laughs> something like that. And it, it, he's like, he's like, some people will look at this. He goes, I got, I got dark humor. But he goes, he goes, some people look at this as a negative way of like, oh, my goodness. I'm, yeah. Uh, why would I ever want to be reminded of that? And he goes, to me, it's just that reminder to live, you know. And he's like, one day you will die. So right now, yeah. that's not that day. So let's live. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> well, Neil, thank you so much. If people want to learn more about you, I would imagine they can follow you on uh, LinkedIn. Is that probably the best place or is there a different website or any way that they can kind of follow along on the journey of Neil? Sure. If people want to follow along on the journey of Neil, they, LinkedIn is a good place. Twitter is also very good. I do lots of daily news updates on Twitter. I try to share all of the retail news I come across. And also on the weekends, as I mentioned, I will often go out into the mall so you can see my trips to retailers, especially Macy's. And uh, some people have said it's very enjoyable. Uh, I'm not quite sure why. I'm quite sarcastic about what I see on the shop floor. I often try to pull out things that don't look so good. People engage much more with that kind of content than saying, oh, look, this is a wonderful display. So if you want to see what I'm up to in the mall, t- Twitter is the place. And uh, Neil Retail, all one word, is the is the handle. Oh, it's not Twitter anymore anyway, is it? It's X. I think it's X, X now, right? <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, that's a whole different podcast for another another episode there. So. It is. <laughs> it is. Well, uh Definitely, I will make sure and put uh, your your LinkedIn and your Twitter handle down in the description of this episode, so people can follow along there. Um, by the way, you did get me paying a lot more attention to uh, stores like Macy's and uh, Dillard's whenever I go in. And I will say, I was in a Dillard's the other day. This is probably two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and uh, the one here in Northwest Arkansas specifically is very well kept. Um, they take great care of it here, so uh, I thought it was. It was Merchandise well, the people actually were very attentive, so that was good. 
<laughs> I agree. It's funny. I agree with that because yeah. uh, we we have the claim to fame of, of Scottsdale. Well, one of the claims of fame is we have the biggest Dillards in the world. Okay. In Scottsdale Fashion Square. I don't know how I found this fact out, but it is it is true. It's somewhere on the Dillard's website, buried away. And it is an enormous store. It's cavernous. It's probably far too big, to be honest, for what they need. <laughs> but I have to say, like, it, it's kind of old-fashioned, but it's nice. It's like retail used to be. And you can, like, see, and the founding family are, you know, still running it. And you can see these, like, old-fashioned retail standards and disciplines and customer service. And Dillard's have done really well over the past few years. And I'm really pleased with that because I think they do make an effort. And I honestly think they deserve to do well because of all the department stores in the U.S. Dillard's, I think it really tries and it doesn't necessarily get everything right, but they they make the effort and it's nice to see people who make the effort winning. So, yeah, that's great that you found the same thing. We're, we're aligned on that. I've been following you on Twitter and I'm just like, yeah, no, this is, this is a very real experience. So it I, I have <laughs> definitely found it useful and enjoyable. So, uh, and, and definitely entertaining for me too. So, uh, that's, anyway. that's good. All right. Well, thank you so much, Neil, for stopping by. I really appreciate you taking time today. Uh, if this is your first time listening to the retail wire podcast, be sure and hit that subscribe button. Hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, if there's anything that you have heard today that you would like more information on, uh, drop a comment down below. Uh, you can also find us if you want to see what Neil and I look like for whatever reason that might be. Uh, then you could go to our YouTube channel, the Retail Wire YouTube channel, and you can find us there because we have this in video format as well. Uh, but yeah, this will be a, another wonderful episode from our Retail Wire uh, Meet the Brain Trust series. So um, thanks again for being here. We really appreciate you. And we'll see you next time here on the Retail Wire podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Retail Wire podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a comment for a chance to hear it read on the next show. See you next time here on the Retail Wire podcast.